We think of Notting Hill as being a posh area with all the charms of a Hugh Grant fairy tale. However, in the late 1950s, it was essentially a slum which housed many Caribbean immigrants. And it was a hotbed of racial tension between disaffected youths. And this tension eventually boiled over into what we now remember as the Notting Hill Riots. I'm Steve, your host. Before I commence this episode, there is a word which I can never say in any circumstances, and that is the N-word that rappers like to use. We all know this disgusting word, and for this story, I will replace this word with the letter N. Sadly, the word is relevant to understand the times, context, and mentality of individuals in this story. And so, if you watch any US prison documentary, such as the race culture, you're forced to stay within your ethnic group, fight with your ethnic group, and if you're mixed race, you're forced to choose which group you belong to, ergo, sometimes battling the other group of your ethnic heritage. Outside prison life has shown many historic similarities, particularly historically the white race imagining a superiority and treating other races disgracefully. And if it's not race, mankind switches to religion with a back and forth persecution of Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Muslims, etc. Looking back to my primary school photos, Such a handsome young man, what female wouldn't have wanted to ruffle that big mop of ginger hair? I was intrigued by how out of a class of perhaps 30, as an ethnic mix, we had 28 white people and two Indian girls. And the surprise to me was actually that it was that many. I just don't remember them. And I don't know if it was because their parents wouldn't let them mix or because they were girls and no boy wanted to play with them. Those girls had nothing that interested us. Yeah. And what was worse was that in Glasgow we were segregated into Catholic and Protestant schools and with one parent who was Catholic and one was Protestant, who was I supposed to hate? It was certainly a few years of character building. And thank goodness I could always learn lots from books. When I first moved to London, it was an absolute cultural explosion. An introduction to cultures, foodstuffs and accents that had been hidden from me. I embraced it and it enriched my life more than I can ever express thanks for. The reality is that children aren't born racist. It's really just equal parts inherently taught and fear of something culturally different 
and the lucky children also now live in cities like London, where a seven-year-old child goes to school with a Charles, a Satna, an Abdul, a Wendy, a Kofi, and a Winston. And these children embrace the valley as much as they do Easter or Eid, or at least they understand and appreciate the values, and they certainly don't suffer from the fears and lack of understanding of the previous generations. In 1950s London, life was certainly different. The reality was that Britain hadn't stood alone against Nazi Germany and it had been saved in a huge way by the brave soldiers and the people of our Commonwealth. From the likes of Malta, that island described as an aircraft carrier, and it being of such strategic importance in dominating the Mediterranean, that it suffered the fate of being the most bombed place in World War II. And it was to the Maltese and many members of the Commonwealth, including the peoples of Canada, India, the Caribbean, Africa, and many more Commonwealth troops who died in defence of their motherland. And when, post-war, some of these brave men and women decided to come to the UK seeking employment opportunities, to say they were treated disrespectfully would be, to put it mildly. I would say, at this point, I'm not an apologist, but simply an acknowledger of past events, and I'm a great believer that anyone who points a finger in the name of a country's doings should perhaps look a wee bit closer. The reality is, no country or its people haven't committed atrocities. Some are perhaps just a wee bit more culpable than others. By the end of World War II, many Commonwealth troops who had been to places like London liked what they'd saw, and despite the weather, they decided to stay or return. Post-war, we saw the British Nationality Act of 1948, which gave citizenship to British colonials, and the Act was also a wee bit self-serving, as Britain needed these workers to fill job vacancies. And of the Act, it opened a floodgate. George Lamming was a writer who described coming to London, quote, Migration was not a word I would have used to describe what I was doing when I sailed with other West Indians to England in 1950. We simply thought we were going to an England that had been painted in our childhood consciousness as a heritage and a place of welcome. And one of the most famous ships in British history started life as a German cruise ship called the MV Monte Rose. During World War II, it served as a German troop ship. And at the end of the war, it was taken by Britain and renamed as the Empire Windrush. In 1948, the ship brought the first large group of post-war West Indian immigrants to Britain, carrying 1,227 passengers and two stowaways. This and subsequent Caribbeans are proudly known as the Windrush Generation. 
I feel lucky to have looked after many of this generation later in their lives, with their equal parts colourful escapades and sometimes very sad tales. And from a culinary point of view, one of my biggest regrets has to be that of a Jamaican delicacy. As part of the nursing team, my sweet Jamaican patient said, come next week and I'll make you the greatest treat. And one week later, I was there expecting Turkish delights of the Narnia tales, only to be met with pigfoot that still had some hairs attached. And under our watchful eye, I had to eat this and pretend it was yummy. My patient was so sweet that I didn't want to upset her. And I had made a face and the wind changed. And on future visit, she presented me with more of these treats. But I brought an empty Tupperware dish and kept these treats for later and later in the bin. I say the Caribbean has brought us many wonderful things, but it can certainly keep its trotters and snouts to itself. And one of my favourite books about London is also about this Caribbean generation. It is a book that I recommend you log on to your Amazon account and order a copy. Because this book, written and published in 1956, perhaps did more to show Londoners that the Windrush generation, instead of coming and bleeding a country dry, were indeed persecuted, undervalued and disrespected. This was Samuel Selvin's book, The Lonely Londoners, setting around Notting Hill, and it paints a picture of the hardships of being black in 1950s Britain, and even reading it almost 70 years on, it does it in a wonderfully unapologetic way, from chasing white women, being given woefully underskilled jobs, to how black men from different countries treated each other. It really is. A magnificent novel. But one white man who certainly appreciated black men was the writer Colin McInnes. He would prowl the clubs of Oxford Street to Notting Hill and his sexual preference would be for African or Caribbean men. And he lived and wrote of this time of racial turbulence. McInnes's greatest work is the excellent Absolute Beginners which inspired the rather kitsch David Bowie musical film of the same name. The book is darker, and parts are played out with the background portraying the events of today's story. When the immigrants arrived in London, like that wave of Italians arriving in New York who ended up clustered in what became known as Little Italy, the mainly Caribbean population ended up in two areas of London, this was around Brixton and South London, and the West London areas around Notting Hill. And by the late 1950s, the Caribbean population in Notting Hill and the surrounding districts grew to be 100,000 strong. In these areas, an explosion of shops, hairdressers, clubs sprung up, catering to this populace, and it fueled anti-immigration politicians Sir Walter Mosley and also the White Defence League and Teddy Boys spoiling for a fight. The Teddy Boy culture grew from disaffected London youths who associated with American rock and roll and dressed in old Edwardian suits 
tailoring themselves in an effort to differentiate themselves from the post-war clones who dressed invariably in demob suits. You have to remember this was a time of rationing. The Terry boys would form territorial gangs fighting each other, but also targeting immigrants. The despicable Mosley had been head of the fascist party in the 1930s and was jailed during World War II. But by the 1950s he had a new cause and he incited unrest by claiming these blacks were coming over to her to take her jobs. This, I may add, was ignoring the fact there was no shortage of jobs and that immigrant men and women were generally given the worst jobs, treated appallingly within these positions, and even for immigrants who perhaps had degrees or were highly skilled in their own countries, they were woefully underemployed. After all, given a non-white, a job supervising white workers would have caused trouble in any workplace at this time. And this was just in the workplace. Out in the streets, it was worse. Graffiti could be found everywhere, with such well-used slogans as Keep Britain White. As we reached the late 1950s, it started to become a racial powder keg. By July 1958, white gangs had been targeting mainly black youths, usually at night as they walked home alone. They would drive around in cars out, in hunting, as they would describe it. They would carry weapons such as hammers and knives, and the immigrants walking home also had to be careful as there were attempts to run them over. By August 1958, things came to the boil, a hundred miles from London, in Nottingham. The St Anne's area of the city was essentially a slum and it exploded into clashes in the summer of 1958. Several men and women were injured, one man needing 37 stitches after a throat wound. This would continue for two weeks and no doubt played a part in sparking the Notting Hill riots. And the Nottingham events were downplayed by Nottingham City Police Chief Constable at the time, Captain Popkiss, who claimed they weren't racially motivated. On the evening of 23rd of August 1958, nine white males cruised the Notting Hill and adjacent areas in hunting. They launched a series of attacks on lone black males. At 5.40am, the youth's car was spotted by two police officers, pursued them into the White City Estate, and whilst the gang abandoned their car, the police used the car as a lead. An investigating detective arrested nine of the gang the next day after working non-stop for 20 hours. And after their attacks, five black men, three of them seriously injured, were admitted to hospital. One of them, with a chest wound, was taken to the magistrate's court on a stretcher to give evidence, but wasn't allowed to do so. The magistrate said, I've never seen a man in that state brought into court. I don't think he's fit to give evidence. And these attacks pretty much increased the tension, almost to boiling point. And the riots were triggered by a violent attack on a white Swedish woman called Madsbrit. Morrison, 
Morrison was living in the United Kingdom with a partner of Jamaican descent. Madge Britt was engaged in a public argument with her husband Raymond outside the tube station on Latimer Road. A number of people tried to intervene in the argument and a small fight broke out. And the following day, a gang of white youths who recognised Madgebrit from the night before physically and verbally attacked her. She was struck with an iron bar and had items thrown at her. And during the attack, she was also subject to a number of racial insult which referred to her choice of partner, such as a black man's trollop and a prostitute. The next day in Bramley Road, between 400 and 700 people had gathered, feelings ran high and the furious fighting was punctuated with shouts of we will kill the blacks, we will get the blacks and the lynch mob exchanged blows with black people and the police. In the affray, several people were admitted to hospital with injuries and two police cars were damaged. The disturbances had spread to several other places. Under the railway arches near Latimer Road Underground Tube Station, a gang of a hundred youths with sticks, iron bars and knives had gathered. There were fights also on the Harrow Road and Kensal Rise, the rioting continuing day and night. Most black people stayed at home, but some fought back as the attack on their homes intensified. By Monday and Tuesday, the 1st and 2nd of September, the riot had reached its peak and had become continuous and widespread. It became a media frenzy, with newspapers daily reporting on what seemed to readers an absolute war zone. Over the course of the week-long spree of rioting and several unrest, around 140 people were arrested. The majority of these arrested were white youths. However, a number of black men were also caught carrying weapons. Ultimately, 108 people were charged with crimes relating to the riots, including grievous bodily harm, possessing offensive weapons and rioting in a fray, and heavy sentences were handed down as a deterrent to future violence. And of the white youths who'd committed their end-hunting attacks on the 23rd of August, their case became notorious for the severe sentences of what most people perceived at worst as common assault. On the 15th of September, when the riots died down at the Old Bailey, Justice Salmon gave judgment on the nine youths. This severe sentence was controversial. They were given four-year jail sentences. Fenner Brockway, having asked the Home Secretary to recommend exercise of the royal prerogative to reduce the sentences, said, These youths were as much the victims of the hysteria which swept over Notting Hill as the West Indians. The whole concept of punishment came under review with strong comments from all quarters. The fascist papers referred to Justice Salmon as that Jewish judge. The youths appealed unsuccessfully and their local MP raised the question in the House of Lords 
he asked that further consideration be given to a reduction of these sentences, if it is not possible to quash them altogether. Although he received support from both sides of the House, the government spokesman replied that he was unable to indicate a prospect that the Home Secretary will find it possible to recommend any revision in the sentences in which the court considered right and which were upheld on appeal. And who could argue that Justice Salmon's words to the charged youths were appropriate? Quote, It was you who started the whole of this violence in Notting Hill. You are a minute and insignificant section of the population who have brought shame upon the district in which you lived. You have filled the whole nation with horror, indignation and disgust. I am determined that you and anyone anywhere who should be tempted to follow your example shall clearly understand that the crime such as this will not be tolerated in this country, but will inevitably meet in these courts with a stern punishment which so they justly deserve. The rioting in the area caused a breakdown of trust between the police and the African Caribbean community in the UK. The African Caribbean community claimed that the police had not taken their fear seriously before the onsets of the attacks. They also argued that many of the black people who had been arrested during the riots were only acting in self-defence. And a seed of something good came out of the aftermath of the riots as it laid the path for the hugely popular annual Notting Hill Carnival. African-Caribbean activists held the first Caribbean Carnival on the 30th of January 1959 at St Pancras Town Hall. And this carnival gave the West Indian community of Notting Hill the opportunity to celebrate aspects of their heritage. Although it was a small-scaled event compared to the current Notting Hill Carnival, the carnival was televised on the BBC. Britain's first black newspaper editor, Claudia Jones, hosted the event and aimed to use the carnival to improve race relations in London. Well, that's it for another episode of the Historical Crimes and Criminals podcast. And I have to tell you, there's a word in Scots Gaelic called Stravagan, and it means to travel a bit aimlessly. And that's what I'm doing. I'm leaving London, and I'm heading off to the Far East with no clear set plans, just see what life takes. And I'm going to take a little bit of a break from the podcast. I've never been to Asia, and I'm looking forward to discovering it just as many years ago, I discovered London and all its cultural and culinary delights, minus the pig foot and the snouts, perhaps. I'll be back. Keep subscribed and you'll get notification when I next release an episode. Hopefully it won't be too long. But till then, bye-bye.